there, my name is Shane Craddock and this is the Inner Edge podcast where I share a different take on how to lead and live a sustainable high performance life. Over the course of different episodes, I'm going to challenge the belief that tension, stress and struggle are essential to success and creativity. My experience is that there's an easier way, there's a better way and indeed there's an essential way that we need to explore for the times that we live in. So let's go ahead, let's jump in and explore. Hello there, you're very welcome to today's episode and today's episode is a little bit different maybe to the normal again. I am going to share with you a conversation that I had recently with a very interesting man. Uh, his name is Manfred Ketz de Vries. I hope I'm pronouncing it that, that right because he's Dutch, Ketz de Vries. He, um, very interesting character, I suppose. I've, I've been aware of his work for, for a few years. He is a prolific writer and he writes about leadership in particular and change, organizational change. And he's a professor, a distinguished professor, professor of leadership and development and organizational change at the INSEAD. And Manfred is definitely one of the world's leading thinkers on leadership, coaching, and also the application of uh, clinical psychology to individual and organizational change. So what's interesting about Manfred is that um, apart from having a wealth of experience with top leaders globally, he also made a very conscious decision to train to become a psychoanalyst. And that has brought, um, I think, a very interesting human perspective um, into his work. And the conversation that I am sharing with you here um, is it's about an hour long. It, um, we cover quite a lot of areas, things like what's leadership, and also he talks a lot about the coaching elements side of that. We talk about one of his unique elements in his uh, program at the Inset which is kind of based around the life case study. And that's well worth a listen to. We'll also talk about some of the immediate challenges, big challenges for leaders of all sizes. We'll talk about the dangers of echo chambers. We'll talk about culture. We'll talk about the fact that he sees himself as an insultant in terms of his job is to tell the truth, what he sees to his clients. Again, something I would 100% believe in and do myself. And then we'll talk about some of the things that leaders, the leaders of the future, leaders of today, need to really upskill on, need to focus on. Highly recommended uh, interview for you to listen to if you're a coach, but also in particular if you're a leader and interested in becoming a better leader. I know a lot of people listening to this podcast would fit that category. So at the end of the interview, I will come back again just for a very short synopsis of some of the key points that I took out of my conversation with Manfred. Uh, so... Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Manfred, uh, welcome to the Inner Edge, and thank you for making the time. It's a pleasure. I'm going to start off with an easy question for you, Manfred. Um, what is leadership to you? What does it mean to you? That's interesting, actually. I, uh, I was thinking about the Zoom call, uh, the Zoom conference I had this week, uh, last week now, it's last week, uh, and they were asking, what's coaching to you? And I was thinking about it. I don't make, I, 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 in a way, uh, leadership is to me to bring people to a place they didn't think they could get, you know, to really stretch them. And in a way, I can talk about coaching in a similar manner because you try to, to try to tap people's potential that they think they didn't have. So there are some, quite some similarities about it. Of course, leadership 
uh, hopefully you uh, have some people around you that's um, and you have some too many leaders sometimes look back and they there's maybe nobody there that's that's not a problem they have some <laughs> that's where the people have decided to leave the boat and leave you on your own yeah <laughs> so there are so many different I, was, I sometimes make the comment that you know, people ask me what uh, uh what you know what i what what makes for effective leadership and and, and usually the answer for, i give is that uh, to be it is very much dependent on <clears throat> on basically a number of filters one is the filter of uh, the industry and one is the filter of the um, of the culture I mean, for example if you are the managing partner of mckinsey which i have one of them i was not long and some time ago not the present one as a student it's a very different role you have to play as a leader than when you run a steel factory in the caucasus i also have people like that so you have to really think about those filters uh, in in that respect so it's hard of course certain things uh you know are uh, maybe a little bit more universal although i mean i have some uh, you know i've been trying to uh, I, I talk about sometimes the, what I call the authentic organization. And the reason is that, according to the uh, Gallup polls, uh, something like eighty percent of the people in the world in organization don't feel engaged. So I see it as my task to have them more engaged. And so that means partially to give people voice and to have tap their brain. And that's and depending on uh, so given. Uh, you know, I, I want to, I try, it's of course utopia, try to help people create organizations where they feel alive. And I've been trying to do it in different ways. One is that uh, I run a program at INSEAD, that's the longest running program by one teacher, more than 30 years now, and I do it because I don't know what's going to happen. Not like an MBA program I hear. I used to teach the core course in MBA and I know exactly what's going to happen. Right. So I, I basically, it's very much dependent on the people. It's the life case study. Which is an uh, you know it's a paradox because I'm a product of the Harvard Business School and I've written probably more than 100 case studies or more I don't know how many which I used to use but here it's the here the, the case studies are in class and it's quite exciting actually because as a person I am by the way I ask people before they accept me into my program you know it's going to be around the life case study and you're going to be the case study how do you feel about that and they look at me and said no problem. So I know better. I know better. So right I'm, now, right now, there's no problem. Yeah, yeah, no problem. But you know, to to stand in front of 23 people, and it's like making an, uh, a documentary. And which scenes in, are you going to put in documentary? And which scenes are you rather embarrassed about? But it might be useful to put in documentary because you can learn something. From Manfred, it. can I just ask you though? But it, I mean, there's a few questions that are popping up here on what you just said. But I'll go with one, which is around. The life case study. So, when the person is standing up in your program, how long are they? They're sharing their life story from their perspective. Is that correct? And how long is that for? Then is it for one hour, two hours, or is it for as long as they want? Uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I said boundaries. Although I have had situations people couldn't stop. They got so they had such a sense of narcissistic bliss. They kept on talking. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm very clear about. Uh, Given that they have many of them run quite important organizations, I have to set boundaries about time. So, uh, and usually they would have the slot would be around an hour and forty-five minutes. But I want them to speak for around forty-five minutes, which uh, because it gives an opportunity during the when during a speech, nobody can talk. 
no inter interruptions. That you okay. have to, it's like a Rorschach test, free flow of thought. And then if there's some time left, if they haven't spoken too long, I give some time for questions, uh, only questions of clarification, no interpretation, just clarification. Okay. And then people can free associate. However, of course, if it's an interesting comment, a story, I mean, uh, even though the time is up, I mean, there are certain things happen in which people give some, you know, some advice, etc. Although I don't start with, uh, after people tell the story, given they're all problem solvers, many of them are problem solvers, they want to give some recommendations. I said, no, 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 I don't want that. I just want you to talk about when you listen to the story, how did you feel? You get irritated, you're bored, you're looking out of the window, you get crazy fantasies, which really is, I talk about counter-transference. I mean, I mean, my other head is, I mean, I'm part of a management professor. I'm also a psychoanalyst. So I want to have some sense of their feelings. And then slowly, and then I make, I do some, sometimes come some strange, uh, you know, for example, I make a great effort in my class to have a gender balance. Now, everybody talks about, you know, uh, uh, gender parity and things like that. But de facto, when you talk about senior programs at our school too, the number of women at the senior level, not at the MBA level, is fairly limited. Yeah. But I really make an effort because I write to, uh, I'm in, my, in the first place, the program I run is rather small. That program is rather small. Um, but I write uh, people who have been, women who have been in the program if they have an interesting female candidate. So I try to have actually, uh, which mm. is the only program of that senior level, which is almost 50-50. Um, which makes for a different kind of culture in, in the organization. So I asked funny questions. I said, you know, so when you said, so how would it be to work for this person? It's fine. That they can say, I don't want to work for him. I used to that's not a kind of person. I said, how would we marry to him? And sometimes I to get the homophobia. I asked it from two men to really get that <laughs> also be interesting. Very so good. Correct. And so and but I always try to say in the end, you know, as a friend. What kind of things can you tell this person? What would be helpful to him or her? But uh, then it's an interesting issue, since it, it's quite a laboratory. So they have lunch together, breakfast together, dinner together. They might walk in the woods together. So the problem gets, and what happens, of course, is that the mirror neurons in the brain, yes, so it's self-centered. So when you tell a story, they start to discover they're so involved in their own story, comparing that story, that every story has an, resonates with them. And so there's also the element of the altruistic uh, motive and saying to himself, my God, uh, you know, I had the same problem at the time, uh, uh, at the time that problem I did this. So people, people get a lot of feedback is an interesting issue. Okay. So, and some people, of course, uh, depending on the culture, uh, you know, certain cultures have a very hard time to talk about themselves. Particularly, think about countries like the Middle East, Malaysia would be also a good example. Yeah. And so longer period of marination. That's the reason marination is maybe the best word. So that's the reason the program is so long. It's four weeks, not in a, you know, over a year. So it's a fairly intensive program and it's a, quite a commitment. And also the application form is a nightmare. I designed it as a nightmare. <laughs> All right, so I have lots, of, lots of difficult questions. Well, let, let me ask you though. I mean, you, you were, you know, self-exploration obviously is very important as part of your work. Um, but what from from doing something like that? What are the benefits? Now, one thing. Remember that statement, which is attributed to Einstein. You know um, about uh, doing the same. It's not actually it was not Einstein. Somebody else doing the same thing and hoping for different results. 
That's right. The definition of insanity. Yeah, exactly. And that's unfortunately what's very often happens. You keep on kicking this horse and hope that the horse is going to get up. And uh, so now my fantasy is, this is always true, that there will be a reflective moment. Also, uh, the program, it's very hard in this program to be Teflon. It's, it's, you know, actually the program already starts when you fill out the application form because of the questions. But it creates tipping points, and uh, and what you know, uh, and you know, when you look at the life, I wrote a little book. I was right. I wrote a book on um, the CEO whisper, which actually I got as a result. Yeah. And as a result, I got this uh, interviews the Financial Times this lunch, which was an, uh, I must say that he was a very good interviewer. But normally, I can steer it a little bit. But he was this was a man with a mission. <laughs> of course, it didn't help that we were virtual. I was sitting and I started off with foie gras, you know, which is duck. Yeah, the, the, F- the lunch with the FT wasn't that it, yeah. A political incorrect, of course, but you live in France, so to have. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, then while I was uh, waiting for my brilliant but slow editor, I hope she listens to this because I'm trying to push him this my next book. She had been sitting on it for so long. <laughs> but my brilliant but slow actor she's a lovely person what's the, what's, what's the next book called uh, actually I, I mean um, one, one book came out which is uh, recently, recently which I, I started to forget I wrote eight books during the pandemic wow right not so not so wow. the next book is called Life at the Crossroads uh, Dialogues with the Kabouter and of okay. course you don't know what the Kabouter you don't know what the Kabouter is you have no idea what a kabouter is. A kabouter is actually a, uh, it's the Dutch name for a gnome. A gnome, okay. So I'm I'm walking in the Siberian wilderness, uh, finding my alter ego. So that's what I do. It happened to be Siberian wilderness because I have to be many times. I know that I could have taken the, the Alaskan wilderness. I've been there too. So I okay. decided at the time because I was intrigued by this strange area where the boreal forest and the tropical forest meet and where you have the Siberian tigers. So I never saw one in the wild, by the way. I uh, I once waited 18 hours. So you're, so you're telling me your alter ego is a gnome? Is that what you're telling me? A Siberian gnome? A, a Siberian gnome. But it's in the gnome, the Dutch, the Dutch gnome. Because the, the normal gnomes are not so friendly. It's a Dutch gnome is kind of friendly person. Oh, is he? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the special Dutch people. I yeah, like it. They're, they're, they're let, let, let's jump back a second. Why? Why did you? When and why did you get into psychoanalysis? Now, why do people go to psychoanalysis? Because they're confused. Isn't that the, the usual thing? There are a lot of rationalization, but it usually since we are so self-centered, we try to understand ourselves better. So that's uh, that's probably one of the reasons. But I was studying actually. I was. I'm a failed engineer. Okay. I what failed. kind? What kind? Actually, I tried twice. Uh, I failed. I failed. I mean, I started with chemical. I can tell you my brilliant career as a chemical engineer was actually one day. Uh, I uh, I was very good in chemistry. So I decided maybe I should become a master. Well, sorry, Manfred, let, let, let's just share something that we have in common. Uh, another thing we've saw, I also, but I, I qualified as a chemical engineer. Oh, yeah. No, I cannot say that. I, I went one day, I went to the laboratory, was led by the laboratory by one gentleman. And he said, you know, on the average, I was 17 years old. Okay. People stay 8.4 years. That's half my life. I looked at this and said, do I want to stand in this spot for 8.4 years? I walked straight out. <laughs> my first, I did my engineering. Then I said, maybe mechanical engineering is shorter. 
Not, okay. not 8.4 years or nine years. But that also I failed because in smoke. Yes, it's a very convoluted answer, but I didn't smoke. I okay. Realized, like, and went from there into what then? So I depression, of course. What to do next? And so I made a negative choice, which is economics. Ah. And so that I finished. That I finished. Yeah. Okay. But, then, but I went actually when I was 70 years old, also went to Harvard Summer School, which okay. is at the time for Dutchman. My father had an office in Boston. And so it was uh, somebody said, well, a good idea for him to do something different. And it was interesting to me because you know, you went, you went out of your bubble of uh, the national bubble. And I met lots of people from different countries, from Ethiopia to whatever. And I said to myself, you know, I'd like to come back. And uh, I think that stimulated me a little bit to, uh, to go to the Harvard Business School. And when I arrived there, uh, there was a program called the, the International Teachers Program that was Harvard Business School attempt to preach to the world about the benefits of the case method. Okay. The that is still doing that because that's the way uh, their, their pedagogy works that way. And I got, I had an advisor. I talked myself into the program. I don't know how I did it. And uh, this is one year, um, one year program. And the advisor said, it's a funny course. I took all the traditional courses. It's a funny course. It's a course called Psychonic Psychology and Management Theory by a man called Abraham Solesnik, who was a professor originally of operation management. So I, uh, I signed up for that. And I had suddenly had to read, of course, I already had a previous interest in psychology, so it's not completely, but mm-hmm. I read Freud's Redman, Wolfman, and the Psychotic Dr. Schreber. And it's very different from reading a sterile you know, essay on economics. Mm. So that's, mm. And that's what it did. Of course, as a confused person coming from another country, uh, it was uh, actually quite interesting to uh, to uh, do those kind of things. And from there, my I became in a way uh, I realized that uh, organizational behavior at business schools doesn't go very deep. It's very behavioral oriented, and I felt it would be uh, very mechanical. Uh, and I, I decided to help bring the person back in the organization. At the time, by the way, the idea of more clinical psychology, put that in management, was an, not a very popular idea. Uh, mm. I felt I was quite a lonely person. And, uh, but that has changed to some extent. I also became, at the time, was one of the founding members of an organization called International Society for the Psychonic Study of Organizations, which seems to be growing, although I am I'm not much to do with it anymore. And, uh, okay. Uh, anyhow, that's that's that. Uh, that was the origins of your of your work. And how many years are you working with leaders now? Can you can you add it all up? I mean, I'm uh, not uh, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. So, so, uh, I run my 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 leadership program at NCAT for thirty one years. 31 years. Okay. Yes, that's uh, that's that seminar. I used to touch, teach, teach always the uh, core course of the MBA program, which I liked. I liked uh, enthusiasm. But then it became, I felt for many years, it became too mechanical. I knew how to do it. And this, yeah. this was what you have the luxury of spending a lot of time. So I learned a lot from it because most of my writing is reactive, that people ask me questions that you cannot answer, but I start to think about it. And as a result, and I find it very helpful to understand something to write about it. That's uh, so. Mm. This play with the idea and get some uh, I, I, some 
I used to actually, it's, uh, I guess I've become a faith prolific writer mm. uh, compared to, uh, but it was not always the case. I mean, and my wife reminds me that when I was a young professor that I was quite constipated. Now it's, <laughs> the, other, now it's the other way around. But I my insecurity about the English language. Okay. Which I still have to some extent, although I'm, I, I think I'm a pretty good writer, people assure me. And actually what I did was, you know, uh, in writing, uh, academic writing, uh, people hide very often be behind management babble and psychobabble. Yeah. And I wrote for a while a column for a major news Dutch newspaper. Okay. It forced me to really uh, use simple language to that, that a large group of people could understand, you know, hundreds of thousands of people could understand it. And that is, I find that still, uh, so I see myself a little bit as a translator taking rather complex concepts from psychology, developmental psychology, psychometric psychology, evolutionary psychology, and neuroscience, and try to translate that into a more common language. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And I can see that. I mean, that comes across in your in your writing style. Let, let me ask you this, you know, with you've decades of experience working with leaders, men and women, but you know, are there any what are the most common pitfalls in leadership would you see? Oh, the pitfalls, of course, uh, that are a very natural one, which has to do with uh, getting, you know, starting to live in an echo chamber. That's what uh, very often happens, uh, that they start to uh, leave their own press. You know, the, 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 the challenge for many leaders is to, uh, now the great, the great uh, Latin, Greek word is, uh, not Latin, Greek word is hubris. You know, becoming uh, pride, getting full of yourself. And uh, that, that happens too quickly. I mean, when I first become the businessman of the year, I was really curious what's going to happen next. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, but, and when, you, when, I, when I sometimes visit an organization and look at all the pomp and circumstances, uh, the private, the private uh, elevator, the private parking place, yes. private plane, I also get very worried. I wonder what's next. Yes. You know, perks of the office. Because, and, you know, and, and coming back to the question that people get quite intimidated. You, know, you come into one of those offices and see all this, uh, it's very intimidating, and so, so people have a tendency to tell them what they want to hear. Yeah. And if they, they start to foam at the mouth when something comes out which they don't like, I mean, forget it, forget it. So uh, how to how to create a culture where people have a healthy disrespect for the boss, and that's not easy. A healthy disrespect for the boss. Interesting. So would you see hubris as the biggest challenge for leaders today? It's always that's always been a challenge. I mean, it's, it's always, always been a challenge. Always been a challenge. I mean, basically, when you look at uh, the, at personality characteristic, the, you know, you have to be somewhat narcissistic to get to the top. It's a question, but it's a question of degree. It's a question of disposition and position. So uh, you have to be, uh, and of course, it also depends on the culture. I mean, I, when you look again, coming to Sweden and look at how the now it's Finland to see how the leaders behave there, and go to Moscow. I mean, uh, it's different, quite different. Or in France, an ex top executive is called a PDG, President Director General. I mean, you know uh, what that means. So there's an element of autocracy there. So that's, uh, you have to, uh, uh, but I guess I come back to the fact that I remember once talking to the CEO of an oil company. He said, how many people work for you? He said, 100,000. That's great. He said, but then he said to me, only, I pay only 100 people to think. And I said, I told him it's quite stupid. In that respect, by the way, I tend to be much more of an insultant. Uh, insultant. 
talk in German. I'm, uh, I'm, I, uh, I'm the fool. So uh, okay. I, I always tell people, I tell my students, please don't be a hungry consultant or a hungry coach because then then you you don't really deliver your value anymore. But unfortunately, uh, you can see it with all. I mean, I've worked with you know some very prime, you know major consulting firms and you see they have clients for life. So yes, that's dangerous. It's, yeah, it's, it's dangerous. It's, uh... But go, but go back to your point. You said to your client he had a hundred thousand work, but he says he only pays a hundred people to think for him. And you said that was stupid. Why? Don't you want uh, if you if you don't you want to? I, mean, I would like to. I mean, people at the front the front line might have very yes. good ideas. Yeah. If you don't allow them to think, you only know, gave instructions from top down. That is very moronic. And did and he? Did, did he? Did he? Ask you why and how, and did he make any change? Actually, we had an argument, yes. But I must admit, I don't know the name, his name, because he sure. redeemed himself in my eyes because of what happened to him afterwards. So I feel that uh, the man has, uh, the man has, 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 you know, what he went through eventually. I felt, uh, I I'm giving you some hints, but when, uh, when Rossi opened, I was so happy because I, I, the whole communist. I, really, I remember being in Russia during the communist period, and, and, and the kind of repression, which is now, of course, has come back. Uh, I wrote a book, uh, "The New Russian Business Leaders," and I interviewed a number of fairly prominent people at the time, at uh, just after Perestroika, and he was one of them. Okay. Okay. So, interesting. Well, he was a very glorious executive at the time, the most glorious, actually. There's another hint I can give you, but that's yeah. about. <laughs> I, I won't say it on air. Um, okay, but, but let's talk. I mean, a little bit about not so much about the war, but obviously we're in a time where I suppose there's a lot of volatility, a lot of uncertainty. Um, it seems to be increasing. That may or may not be the case, but it seems to be increasing. Uh, there's certainly a lot of disruption and change. Change has always been there, but it does seem to be accelerating. I'm just curious. Some things have always been there for leaders, like Hubers that you mentioned, but what are the skills that you think today's leaders need to have more than ever? Now, I think, um, uh, you know, we live in, I wrote an article recently called uh, Living in a Psychotic Age, in which uh, the reality, I mean, you can talk about, you know, people who are supposed to be somewhat healthy, and you have neurotic people, borderline and psychotic people. And border and, and psychotic has to do with that your sense of reality testing becomes uh, quite, uh, you know, difficult uh, you don't know you have a problems with your identity and use very primitive defense mechanisms like denial and splitting and projection and and because of the uh particularly trump has been trump has been a good example of that but i mean i'm not underestimate the propaganda we find in russia or in the philippines or whatever or also in india i mean the social and in china the social media have become quite a weapon of mass destruction we actually, uh, I, I don't think, but maybe I'm just exaggerating, that living, we live in a real age of anxiety, the horseman of the apocalypse, and we have at the moment a combination of factors, which make, give, doesn't, doesn't give me a warm feeling for my children and grandchildren. You have global warming, which is all the time on top of the hit parade. You have nuclear threats every day. You can read articles in the New York Times about, is Russia going to explode a bomb? You have, of course, the element of great income inequality, invitation to social mm -hmm. unrest. You have migration, which results in identity politics, because people have xenophobic reactions. You have terrorism, 
you have COVID and now it's varieties of it and you have war. I mean, it couldn't be worse. And yeah. all things come together. I mean, so as, 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 as a young person, you can ask yourself, do I want to have children? Is this the billboard I want to live in? So there are lots of pressures. Now, for executives, and on top of that, of course, the whole issue which you have that people have to work from home, which is an advantage and a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Because as you know, it, uh, it destroys uh, social capital. Mm-hmm. And and also, you because you know, I, I was trying to tell a little bit earlier when I finished that book, The CEO Whisperer, I wrote a little book called Covadis, which is actually a nice little book. Mm. I wrote in one big stretch. I wrote in a month, I think. But wow. it really is, it's really focused on uh, the issues which my executives struggle with. And, and basically, it has to do... You now, we are... And Homo sapiens has a disadvantage. We have frontal lobes, which help us to, to look into the future. And we know we're going to die. And that is not easy. That's not easy. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe elephants have the old same sense of it. Some people argue about that. But we know. We know we're going to die. And because of that, there's a great search for meaning. And one way, of course, we look, we deal with it is having religion, having children, great works, whatever it might be, to leave something behind. Because it's very hard to imagine the disintegration of one's body. And I'm over my expiration date, so I can I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but uh, so... Uh, we are, and, and, and Victor Frankl, you know, the, 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 the Holocaust survivor. Yes. He wrote about men's search of, for meaning. And I wrote a little book which in meaning is in the center of a kind of matrix, and you have a different elements to it. One is a very important factor is belonging. Belonging is, I think, the most important factor we have. I was, a, I've been also an admirer of this Harvard study, which started in 1938, the, uh, where they followed a group of uh, sophomores and some of those people are still alive and they asked them what was most important to them uh, in, 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 in their lives and it was a good relationship with family and friends and that's important and coming back to some concerns of executives they might ignore it because they're so busy uh, doing whatever they're doing the other thing is to figure out what you're really good at what are you really good at what gives you a sense of flow and uh, what gives you you know, you lose a sense of time. And, you know, some, and it has to do also with what kind of intelligence you have, you know, from analytical intelligence to uh, interpersonal intelligence to athletic intelligence to musical intelligence, whatever. What really gets you, really gets you completely. I mean, my example is always that I was once in Norway. I was fly fishing for salmon and it's always lie there and I forgot my sense of time. I was, my my, my family thought I had drowned because it was <laughs> I know the salmon was there and I was there and he had this interchange. I didn't catch one at the time. I remember that, but I knew there was one. Of course, it jumped suddenly, but I didn't want to take it. And what, what gives you your sense of flow today? What does it for you now? Oh, I mean, fishing is still not <laughs> Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I've never fished in Ireland. Though. Okay, yeah, well, it's good fishing here, yeah. Yeah, uh, fished in Scotland. No, I mean, uh, what gives me a sense of flow is, uh, uh, I think... Uh, Seeing people make important decisions in their life because I was able to, you know, for example, when I'm in class, uh, what, what I help people do is to get some tipping points. It brings me back to uh, the other part of that mean, the sea search for meaning. The most important decisions you have to make in life has to do with usually finding a partner, 
and we do, I mean, Ireland might be better than other countries, but certain countries are doing a shitty job, to be honest. Right. And the one is career. And I'm very proud of the fact that, uh, you know, when I came to INSEAD, nobody talked about coaching, nobody talked about leadership. Now, right. everybody talks about leadership, everybody talks about coaching, and yeah. everybody gets coaching except for a long time the MBAs because it's an enormous group and coaching is not mass production. But finally, everybody gets coaching. And I have this, I have this fantasy about my be in fantasy. I was, I was, uh, I had an, uh, I was in, uh, I, I gave a talk to my old university, my first university in Holland. And, and when I looked at the audience, I was thinking about it. You know, my cohort, they made so many bad decisions. Some became alcoholics, bad marriages, bad careers. And I always wondered, in fantasy, if they would have psychology 101. I mean, not rats or stats, but uh, more clinical psychology. Yeah. Maybe they would have made some wiser decisions. So this element, another factor in the search for meaning, to really make somewhat wise. I wrote a little book, actually. Uh, it's called Leading Wisely, which is uh, what came after the Covadis book. I mean, I, mean, I keep on writing books. And it's, it's, yeah, my well, publisher must be sick of me because normally people write one book and they wait for 10, 15 or, ne or never. But I have that is the production center. That's uh, yeah, yeah. Well I, well, I was guessing, I thought you were going to say one of your flow activities would be writing because obviously you're so prolific. Now, writing is different. Writing has to do, it's, it's true actually, but writing is an antidepressant. Okay. I, I had I had I had some stu one student told me always if I don't play the piano I don't feel yeah. good. So and if, did you did you suffer from depression? No, we all suffer from depression. I mean, we all have ups and You down. think so? This is a universe. Yeah, you haven't. I of mean, course, of course. Universal yeah. phenomena. Come on. Oh no, um, of course. You all have from. Of course, it, I'm not. I'm not manic depressive, which is by the way, interesting yeah. executive. I've had quite a few clients who are. Bipolar, and that's an interesting phenomenon. How to deal with those people? They how would you deal? How would you deal with those people? It's usually a fairly intense relationship I have with them. I would I, imagine. <laughs> first, I've discovered that they are. I mean, first, you don't see it. You know, like in Churchill, that you, that he was a bipolar, but uh, not not obvious. I mean, we have General Patton was bipolar. Mussolini was bipolar. There are lots of bipolar people, but you only see the upside. You don't see the downside. Well, actually, can I just, I want to ask you something here because it's popped up here because obviously you're dealing with different people. Now, obviously, the kind of work you're talking about, you know, I, I know you, you've split your work one-to-one, -one, one to group, and then you're doing your education, your programs, things like that. But on the one-to-one -one side, the work is emotionally, it can be emotionally draining. It can be very challenging for dealing with somebody who's a bipolar. Leaders are generally quite intense uh, people as well. Um, so you got to be on your game. So how do you... How do you manage yourself in 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 between those meetings? How do you look after yourself? What's your approach? Generally, <clears throat> early in life, I used to have uh, some supervisors. You know, okay. I, I mean, I've been as an analyst. I had um, I had two analysts, and when I came back, the first one was in France, a lady who uh, was quite well known from uh, New Zealand, actually, but she uh, moved to France. And so when I came back to France many, many years later, I decided to use her as a supervisor, which was quite useful to see her on a regular basis. You know, basically you you, you carry lots of garbage. Yeah. Garbage can, and so you like to get rid of the garbage. And that's the reason I advise, uh, you know, and think about beginning coaches or even any coach to have regular supervision, to be able to, or maybe also in a group setting that you have a group of people. Of course, sometimes people are lucky, they have some good friends. 
you can go to the pub, you know, and I don't know. <laughs> I used to go to the pub in Holland, but I don't have a founder pub here. I live in the center of Paris, but it's not the same as the pub I had in Holland, where you could find the mayor of the city and the swimming cheaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and that you probably have more in Ireland. That's well, maybe, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure even in Ireland. I'm not sure they're going to tell you the truth, you know, which is, and that's what you need to hear. If you keep on asking questions, you get the kind of, you can, I, I ask the craziest questions as an, uh, I can get away with it. I mean, uh, yeah. like, they're so delicate about dealing with their client, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm ruthless in that respect. Maybe it's, yeah. I'm too Dutch in that respect. <laughs> but of course, uh, uh, you know, if, if you have good friends, if you have a you know, good partner, that helps. Yes. And then, of course, uh, now at this stage in my life, I must admit, I, uh, the one I use as uh, is my wife. Actually, my wife is also she's a, she's a coach. She's she's. Okay. Uh, she is a much better coach than I am, I think. I mean, I'm too impatient. I'm, I'm too radical. I'm too much of an insultant. She's much nicer. <laughs> she, sounds, she sounds quite nice. Maybe maybe I could, I could talk to her at some point. So nice. I, know, <laughs> I know you said she's Swedish, so she's different nationality. Um, interesting. You said, I mean, obviously you're talking about garbage. And obviously everybody, we all can carry around garbage, some to more degree. So you're helping your clients throw out the garbage. Now, one of the things you said a few minutes ago, I think I just want to come back to it. You said you have to be narcissistic to some level to succeed. So are you, in, in a way, do you see yourself as helping to manage, help people manage that narcissism or are you helping them to remove it? I try. And in that respect, you know, the, now I have many clients who come to me and said, I have no life. Okay. And I listen to them and look at them. I said, my God, here's a person who's the major shareholder of a large company. I mean, uh, he has, I mean, and think about being a middle management manager. He has so much control of the operation. Of course, you have also have some people, you have banks and whatever, other stakeholders, but here he is, usually he. And I said, you know, do something about it. So, you know, make, create a life. But of course, then they have, then they have some problems. Uh, they have their narcissism. They have their obsessionality, need for control. And things like that, they don't delegate properly, et cetera. They don't have a good team because they have, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and as, an, as a coach and therapist, when it can be a very long process before they see the light. Of course, you can say it's the bread and butter of coaches. You, know, you can have them for a long time, but I'm impatient. I want, I want to have some results. And I have often found that when I put them in a group setting, the force of the group will finally make certain things happen, which doesn't happen. Uh, which, which, and uh, you know, to, to really, really pressure the person to finally make the decision he or she knows has to be taken. But the, they, they finally think the, I try to explain to them, if you carry a stone in your hand, maybe a light stone, for an hour it's okay, two hours it becomes heavier, three hours maybe your arm gets lame. And that's what happens if you you better make a decision, do something about it instead of this work of worrying, have a little pain, but in the end, it's a massive pain. So, but you know, you can you, you can talk about it theoretically, but when you have a group, uh, they 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 give, yeah. very often give a kick. And when you also deal with narcissistic people, I very often discovered that uh, you know they're not easy to deal with. But narcissists, cure narcissists. So if I, they all, I mean, the group of people I have, they all have 
the reason they're there where they are, they have some strong narcissistic tendencies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so when you when they become too narcissistic, they get strong hints at lunchtime, at dinner time, yeah. that maybe they should modify their behavior a little bit and listen a little bit more. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm laughing because I can relate to that in terms of um, what you're saying. I can see even with some of the groups that I would work with, I can see that. You you, you use a phrase in some of your books that I've read, um, the inner theater. So just explain, how does that come into then? How does that how does that affect the leader? And why is it important? What do you talk about? The inner theater is not my term. People think it's my term. It's not ah, my yeah. term. Okay. It comes from my first analyst, the one I just mentioned, who was Joyce McDougall. She wrote uh, yeah. some books about the theater. But basically, it has to do, what are the major themes that that guide you in your life? Now, what, what is really important to you? you know, do you have a great need to be loved? Do you need... You have, you have, you have, I'm, I'm writing at the moment. I've been actually sh- switching because of the war in, in, in Ukraine. I have usually been interested in, in, in micro, more micro issues. Like I wrote a little article recently about the Shirazada method, about how to um, Shirazada being the thousand and one night, being probably the best coach ever because she changed the mass murder into a normal human being. Let's face well, it. Yeah. And that's, uh, but I mean, more interested in uh, more mega trends. And one has to do, for example, uh, I, I'm just, I wrote this whole morning on an article, in fact, it's become too long an article on feeling victimized. And that's what, of course, the thing that demagogue leaders take advantage of. If, I mean, that's uh, Trump being a good example, you know, to, 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 to basically uh, try to uh, uh, speak to his, say that. Uh, they are disadvantaged or taken advantage of, and you know, he was going to clean the swamp, etc., etc. Mm. So, um, where does it come from, and how do you deal with it? That was uh, that's what has been uh, my reason. More also, that article I wrote about the psychotic living in a psychotic age has to do more with uh, larger uh, mega, more mega phenomena, and, and because of my concern about when you live in an age of anxiety. It's the ideal breeding ground for populist demagogue leaders to come to power and and and, and helped by the social media, which they use quite effectively. Uh, it's not it's not difficult. I mean, it was already done, you can say, in other way. I mean, there was a statesman in France called Talleyrand who said, vilify, vilify, something will stick. So that's what you do with the social media. You keep on giving false information and mm-hmm. eventually uh, something will hang in there and people start to doubt certain things. Mm. Look at the propaganda machine, for example, in Russia. It is quite mm. beyond. What you're describing there, isn't it? That's the manipulation of other people's inner theater, which is a very real thing. So, so I suppose what you're pointing to, I guess, is the importance of the leader to know that there is an inner theater, that they also have one. And that could, I, that's probably distorted reality. I want them to be aware. What are some of the things which make them the way they are? What are some of the things that drives them? Actually, I actually, I, 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 at one point in time, when I was the director of the Global Leadership Center in INSEAD, I went into psychometrics to help okay. my coaches and had developed a number of instruments, one a leadership instrument, a team instrument, and one is inner theater instrument. So what are the major drivers you have? <clears throat> and are they still functional? That's another thing. I mean, certain things might not, what might be an adaptive process when you're 15 years old, might not be very adaptive when you're now in your 30s. And uh, maybe you should you should uh, you should try to adjust certain things, which is not easy, by the way, because as you know, you're very malleable when you're very young, and yes. at your age, it's not that easy. But yeah. 
it's possible. You know, it's possible to start to change. That's the reason the programs I run are so long, because people need some time to work certain things through and yeah. experiment with new behavior and see if that, you know, the, the pleasure play, the pleasure pain equation, if that works out for them. Well, what are some of the drivers that your psychometric testing were were measuring? What are some of the drivers that you were looking for? I was already, already saying the need to be loved, the need to get even, or the need to be helpful, the need, whatever, all the all this all this, all this kind of, for example, when you think about coaching, you know, uh, you know, coaches should be aware that they can be overhelpful. Yes. But that's that's the kind of this kind of uh, they should be able to be able to set boundaries. Yes. And they should not create I see it all the time when you see, and that's one of the things that everybody in the kitchen sink has become a coach. Yeah. But do they, do they have a good sense of their own inner theater? Why they do what they do? Why do they mean uh, it's now in, uh, and that's it's quite important that their neurosis should not be projected on the clients. They should really become, and to have this, you know, basically what I try to do in my work is to create some reflective leaders. That's what you're coming back to the Einstein uh, yeah. comment. That they that they don't fall into when people come to me, for example, and say and say I want to become a charismatic transformational leader. I laugh. <laughs> like I said, go to a snake oil salesman. <laughs> if they tell me I want to become, you know, I want to learn more about myself, and as a result, I might start to react to situation a little bit differently than the traditional pattern that I might do get out of the box. To find and, but if you're dealing with somebody, say, I don't know, you mentioned a client there, you know, that we won't mention any names, who was leading 100,000 people, they're busy, they, you know, these CEOs, they're tight on time. I mean, do you ever have a situation where somebody sits down and say, hey, Manfred, you come recommended, I want to, you know, I'd like to do some work. And you say, well, we're going to talk about reflection. And they're going, and they look at you and go, I haven't got time for reflection. Like, what do you say to that? <laughs> so go to someone else. <laughs> yeah, but 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 my guess was that I'm that's probably what you would say. Huh? No, I'm trying to say. I said, why do you want? Why do you want me? What do you want? To, what do you expect of the? I mean, you have to do some contracting. Yes. After contracting, say, listen, do do you uh, do you? A, can I offer you what you want? Yeah. I mean, and of course, the the one thing you should be very aware of, which I uh, people don't always get, you have to listen very carefully to what not being said. And, and and the initial complaint might not be the complaint. You have to look. That's yes. the reason. You know what's what's underneath the complaint. I've been burned too many times. In particular, I've done quite some work in family businesses, and you know the family business can be extremely convoluted and you know very. You know, we talk about uh, Greek mythology in action from Oedipus to Medea. I mean, it's tragedies. Real, not even. Comic tragedies, real tragedies are taking place. And sometimes I, do, I, I, I listen to the stories and say, the only, it's always hope. I say that there's death. That sometimes <laughs> <laughs> as a new equilibrium after death. There's death. There's yeah. death. So we can we can hope for that. Yeah. That'll create its own level of change. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it's so stuck. I mean, when people come to me and say, You're my last hope, I start running in the other direction. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> you have to use some humor about it. I mean, you have to laugh at some of the things. That's uh, I sometimes say. My main, uh, usually, my presentations I used to give to uh, large groups of people. I, I, I say that I have to get senior executives to giggle. When they giggle, I can shove something in, some bad news about. Yeah. Oh, 
Absolutely. So, so you just go, boom, get it in between their eyes. I like it. You, you mentioned earlier on about, um, you know, obviously we're in a time where there's more and more women coming into organizations of business, as we both said there, there's probably not as many as we'd like at the higher, higher levels, but that's increasing. But would you, what difference do you see between male and female leaders? Are there any? Now, even though jokes are being made about women uh, looking in the mirror and using makeup, et cetera, they're less narcissistic. They're less narcissistic. Less narcissistic. I mean, most women, and it's interesting when I, I remember when I started my little seminar, but it's different. I also started the program at Inselt, which is a master's degree in coaching and consulting. It's not, it has now another name. But uh, when you have a, a beginning, at, I, I had no women then 31 years ago. Then I got one woman who became, uh, I still remember her actually, she became the, the head of the National Health Service in the UK. Okay. I'm a dame, I'm a dame, very strong lady, interesting lady. Uh, no longer, she no longer didn't have anymore so many years ago. But sure. she, she knew how to handle those, those all, all those men. But then when you get a large number of women, they start to, I mean, think about it. you're the only man among 20 or whatever, there are a group of women. It's not easy, eh? so you have yeah. to. So now, so they talk about things, and most women had some uh, not so nice experiences, uh, which uh, you yeah. know, and, and and that really, you know, think about a woman walking in the street in some dark alleys, and there's some men there. Yeah, now, you wonder, you wonder. Maybe all we have all this feeling, but women have it more because they've had some bad experiences, so they're yeah. more aware of. Maybe it sounds very simplistic about the vulnerability of the body, more than men. And they had some experiences where they felt they couldn't control the situation anymore. Mm -hmm. And so it makes them, and also has gives has an empathic reaction. Of course, I'm not even talking about physiological as aspect, which has to do that women can do something men can do, which giving birth, you know, which all this mm -hmm. seeing special relationship with a baby and things like that. But that's different. So, and of course, at the moment, I think one of the better role models of a leader even though it's a very small country, is New Zealand. It's mm. She's mm. quite interesting. Also, it's a country like Finland, which is in a different state, having an enormous border with Russia, but still. Mm. She went to a disco, which was apparently a big sin. Okay, well. But, so uh, I shouldn't generalize, but women, uh, uh, you know, they make, they, they make comments about the emotionality and things like that, bullshit. Men, 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 men show a lot of emotionality in different ways. And the yes. testosterone goes up there and they do crazy things. And so in that respect, uh, I don't think there would be so many wars if the the CEOs, the leaders, would be women. That's my yeah. idea. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And that's, by, by the way, another factor which I'm on a government on the board, the Hillary Institute in New Zealand, and they were talking about certain issues. They, 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 they appoint laureates for... Uh, who try to help change the world? To me, uh, to me, I, I was once on a panel for the BBC. Um, they asked in the end the question, which was not included in the cast, which I felt stupid. Which was it was about super rich. I wrote an uh, wrote an article about the super rich. Um, uh, if you would have ten billion dollars or so, what would you do with it? And I said, educate women because they're the culture carriers. And in too many countries, not necessarily in the West so much, but when you can, yeah, because, because Afghanistan being the worst example, mm -hmm. and still, you know, there's a lot of uh, suppression of women and 
And that should, something should be done about that. I used to say actually years ago, not the case anymore, that in Europe, Western Europe, the most uh, non-liberated countries were Holland, Ireland, and Portugal. <laughs> but as Holland, Is that, would, that be, would that be because of religion? No, 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 not necessarily religion, but... Well, what would you see as, as, that, as the cause being there? Partially, I mean, it is, uh, I mean, it's not the case anymore. It has completely changed in Holland, I know. I don't know about yeah. Ireland. I think in Ireland also has changed. Oh, I would, I would say hugely changed, yeah. But I, I, would, I would have linked some of that now to me to the, change change the Catholic I, Church. And you have the Catholic Church. We had, of course, the Protestant Church. Yeah. In, in that respect. Although... It depends. The southern part of Holland was Catholic, uh, so it was, Portugal uh, would be very Catholic as well. Yeah, yes. Of course, the the Catholic Church is not a role model of uh, liberation. As you that's know. my point. That's my point. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. In Holland, it was also the, the, the Protestant Church, which has more liberation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so, well, that's interesting. Um, what I'm wondering is, again, it's just a, a couple of notes based on stuff you said earlier on, and you said a client said to you. You know, look, I'm successful, but I just don't have a life. That's something that I hear as well. What I'm curious about is, from your perspective, what's your general approach to help them get a life? No, that's a very interesting question. I mean, I that means that you have to ask some questions about. Um, I uh, ask questions. I'm I'm actually quite terrible in that respect. I ask questions about: Do they dream? Do they dream? Yeah, do they dream? Do they remember that? Of course they dream. They're 47 dreams every night. But most, it's funny in my seminary, I asked the first day, I said, and do you have any dreams? No. no. I guess a dream, I don't remember. On, this, on the third day, everybody dreams. Most people dream. Lots of this, like, you all flood out. Yeah, make an effort. And so, uh, so I ask if you dream. And so what are the dreams? What are some of the themes in the dreams? And that brings me to, uh, gives you a broader perspective because they don't ask just about your organization. Of course, you obviously have no life. It would be hire some good people, delegate, and lie on the beach, you know, and uh, and sometimes look at some financial figures, you know, of the, of the company. That would be the answer. But uh, of course, they cannot do that because they have this great need. The whole thing would collapse if they lie on the beach. They're sure about it. They might be surprised when they lie on the beach that things work very well. Then I also ask about their personal life. Of course, they have no life because the, the wife has quit the man. The wife has quit a long time ago and the children hate them because of their, their behavior. So it's, uh, so I ask about also about, apart from dreaming habits, also do they sleep? I ask questions about you know, the issue of, and it's important actually, uh, self-care and self-compassion. Self-care, uh, self-compassion, okay. So that, those are important factors. How do you, how, so you, you start to ask some questions. How do they care of themselves? Do they do, uh, you know, I, I have this simple matrix, uh, uh, which is which has to do with um, like, don't like, important, not important. I have two by two matrices. I don't want to make it too complex. Yeah, I like simple too. <laughs> very, very simple. So don't like, not important. What are you doing there? Okay. Uh, don't like and important. Give it to somebody else. You will very never find it. And then, of course, when you spend your time on is like and important, it's contributing to the company. And you should also like and not important. Go fishing, go hunting, go golfing, go whatever you do. You know, you, it gives it's it's a way of you re relaxing your brain and you get good ideas. Just okay. sit behind your desk all the time. I mean, it's not that's not, I mean, I very often make the comment that I 
I, I have written a lot of things, but I, did, I mean, I, of course, I have to write it down eventually, but the ideas didn't come sitting here. I walked in the woods, lying in the bus stop, whatever. Yeah. Uh, that's where, where, they, where I suddenly get an idea. Creating space for the idea. Your brain is working. The only time your brain doesn't work is when you're dead. Even when you sleep, your brain is working. And I'm sure you say the same to your clients as well, then, about helping them get ideas too. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, let, let, okay, so really what I'm asking about is, I ask a question about the stress level. Yeah. And what causes them stress? What gives them energy? It's important, you know, what is their energy barometer like? You know, and what and what drains them of energy? You know, how to stay away from toxic people? Of course, sometimes they might be your family members. Mm. That's that's not a problem. If that's and that can be very toxic. And of mm. course, in the end, when you think about my seminar, at the beginning they talk about the organization, at the end they talk about their children, their spouses. That's that's really where the action is. Where really Have you ever had a situation, Manfred, where you know, you talk with a client one to one like that, and talk about their dreams. You talk, you ask all the questions that you just went through there, and over time, they decide to leave the organization or sell the organization. Has that ever happened? Oh yes, oh yes. Also, they quit their they quit their wives or husbands. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that too. <laughs> it's parallel lives. I mean, it's not. But uh, I want another. I have only one life. I don't believe in reincarnation. Yes, I don't want to waste it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, those, are the, those are, by the way, the big, those, the, the personal ones are the big tipping points. Say that again? The personal ones, you know, like you realize that what might be good at 20 may be good at 40, as far as relationships are concerned, are the big yes. tipping points. Okay. And that happens, what sometimes keeping a relationship together are children. But uh, when the children are out of the house, it sounds very trite, the empty nest syndrome. They sometimes look at each other and say, nobody, we used to pick up the children from school, who is going to, who is going to take care of eat, of, 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 of dinner, etc. Now there's no, no reason anymore. Why bother? Actually, I wrote, I wrote a long article uh, because I had so many problems in the relation about the triumph of hope over experience, in which I give a number of pointers um, as my as a marriage counselor, which is ridiculous. I mean, that's not my role, but I, I mean, it came my role because it was an issue which came up and up and up again. I had once in class where one third of the people discovered they had no real relationship. And what was your key point in the triumph of hope over experience? What was what was the point you were trying to make? No, I think uh, I, I think an important factor, you know, if it's something ask people, why did you marry your wife? Yeah. They look at me and they have no answer. Now, there's three elements, of course, in a relationship. One is sexual passion. That's important. I mean, uh, that's an important factor. Of course, that go, goes up and down depending on the situation and the lengths and also whatever other factors. The second one is that you... Uh, Care, a certain amount of care, a certain amount of intimacy. You can talk about very personal things. And those fluct those things fluctuate. So I think the important, because what I also see is that people divorce and then they just marry a younger version of the same woman. Yeah. There we go again. Yeah. And so you have seen that also. There we go again. So maybe it gives them temporary high, but then they're, then they're, they're the same model. In the meantime, there are lots of messes behind them in the form of children who are quite getting very angry about all the situation. So selection is quite important. That you 
I think an important factor is probably that you should ask yourself, apart from the, the, the temporary psychotic state, which is uh, falling in love, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that can this person be a good friend of mine in the yeah. world? Yeah. Simple question like that. Nice question. Staying on hope, you know, you've heard that phrase in business, you hear hope is not a strategy, right? I mean, if hope isn't there, we have a big problem. So when you say the triumph of hope over experience, is that what you're saying as well to leaders? Or what are you saying? Yeah. No, I mean, there was Napoleon who, who said, yeah, I like to quote him always, and that was not necessarily I'm, I'm an admirer of Napoleon. <laughs> right. But, uh, it's uh, leaders are merchants of hope. Yes, okay. As a leader, even though things are very tough, you uh, you have to try to positively frame things. That's a yes. You cannot say things are bad, 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 bad. Everybody gets depressed. So you have to positively frame. So otherwise, without hope, I mean, let's face it, Pandora's box, you remember? Hope was the thing. So the, we need hope. And even in this age of anxiety that you live in, we need to create hope that there are possibilities. And, you know, that, you know, you know the, the ability that even if you feel sometimes uh, uh, helpless, you can do you can do a little bit to make it a little bit of a better world. I mean, like think about your your podcast. What you're trying to do is to is an educational process to give some ideas to leaders how exactly. they can create better organizations, be better with their people. And so it is your I would assume that's the reason I'm also on this podcast. It my my hope to make a small contribution to what could be a better world, at least in my imagination. I mean, yes. I'm, I'm fooling myself. But uh, I'm, fooling, have... I'm fooling myself too. But you're right. That's exactly my intent. Yeah. So hope, hope is a is a vital quality for the leaders. What you're saying that they are. I love that. I hadn't heard that quote before. So leaders are merchants of hope. Beautiful. Exactly. Beautiful. Exactly. Listen, I think that's a great way to probably close out on the interview with you. I, I listen, and you've been very generous with your time. I could I could definitely speak to you for a long time and just let you tell your stories. But we'll have to close it out. One final question for you: um, In terms of you, you mentioned that you've written obviously a huge amount of articles. Um, I'm going to put up a, a link to, I suppose, the best place to get those articles. Do you have a blog, or where where can people find your articles online? <laughs> <laughs> That's so not an easy. So we if we finally got a question, I, I, you have to answer. It's not completely. I have a. Uh... Uh, I started once a consulting firm, which now the one who is running it, which is quite successful, it's uh, narcissistically called KDVI, which stands for the Cats Degrees Institute. And my daughter is the managing partner. So there's a link to KDVI. There are lots of there are lots of articles there. That's probably the the better the, the that's probably the best way to go. Okay, well I'll put a link in the in the show notes. Um and to kind of close it out in terms of um this was where we where we ended up with was talking about hope. And I think uh, yeah, definitely I think there'll be plenty of Plenty of information and stories and nuggets in this chat with you, Manfred, uh, to give some hope to do a little bit. So thank you very much. It was a pleasure and good luck. Thank you. Okay, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation. I am, uh, you know, it's a selfish way for me to kind of get to talk to people <laughs> and I'm including you in my conversations, which is, a nice way of using technology. But three things. There was so much from my perspective that I got out of that. And I've listened back to it again a couple of times. But I'll just share with you three things from my perspective that really I found quite interesting. The first one was um, his answer to the question he was asked at some 
board conference, uh, you know, how if you were given 10 billion, how, how would you spend it to benefit the world? And he said he would educate women globally. And, and he used this phrase which, phrase, which I love, which is women are the culture bearers. There's a lot in that. And that's something we, that's something that definitely, I think, is very valid. Women are the culture bearers. Um, so that was the first thing that, that I'm going to share with you. The second thing is I just loved his comments about culture in general and the fact that he's an insultant to the leaders. Brilliant. I've learned that myself over time. It took me a while to get there. And certainly when I'm talking to, if I, if I occasionally mentor coaches or consultants who are new to the industry, and definitely what you're trying to get them to do is to <laughs> tell it as it is. That's what you're there for. But it's amazing how pe many people don't. Um, but I love the phrase that he used. He said, create, create a culture where there's a healthy disrespect for the boss. Brilliant. So if you're the boss listening to this, do you have that kind of culture around you? How do you know? Do you allow people to challenge you? Do you allow people to disagree with you, give a different opinion? Or are you somebody who just wants to have your own echo chamber? That's a biggie. It is a biggie. Um, and then the third thing that really struck me in the interview was, and it's funny, there was a, there was a couple of parallels in my interview there a few weeks ago with Richard Hogan uh, um, about when we were talking about screenagers as parents, you know, parenting the screenager. And he mentioned that we're in the time of the age of anxiety. And Manfred said the exact same thing. He also added in the age of, I think, psychosis, but he said the age of anxiety. And so he said, he used Napoleon's quote, leaders are merchants of hope. What a great quote, but it's true. You know, as a leader, and that could be in any context, not just in terms of business or a, not for, or a profit run organization or family or community. If you're a leader, you are a merchant of hope. It's too easy in, in today's world for everyone to be affected by the news that is just relentlessly thrown at us 24-7 and sometimes even extinguished with people with so much negativity very often coming our way. So life is full of problems. Life is full of punches and kicks. As a leader, I think it's a great way to close it out. You know, we are the merchants of hope. So I guess that's why I'm always saying to my clients, look, we have to work on our own state, our own mood. When your state is up, your, your hope uh, factor tends to be higher. And then it's easier to be a, a merchant of hope. Powerful, powerful stuff. Please do check out the show notes. I am going to put a link to Manfred's uh, organization website and a couple of other things there if you're interested in checking out more information uh, and more about his work. That's it for this week. Ciao.